Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for what this is all about. I thank you that we get to take some time to slow down in the busy season with so many things going on, and we get to reflect on what this busy season is really all about, that it is all about you, that we are celebrating, enjoying, reflecting, uh, just recalling to heart, mind, and soul what this is all about. And I thank you that we get to look at you in, in such a pure light, in such a refined, clear way, where we see the real heart of this season, the real heart of your love, and your life. I pray this morning as we reflect on that story and we reflect on what today is all about, that you will fill our hearts full of your presence, full of your grace, full of your joy and peace and hope. All the things you grant through the coming of your Son, Father God. Thank you for sending Jesus. It's in your awesome name we pray. Amen. So here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to lock into your mind kind of like uh, the the very essence of what Christmas Day feels like for you. Like when you think about Christmas Day, picturing the perfect day. And I want you to do that by thinking about all of the senses, right? So what you see, what you hear, what you smell, what you taste, what you touch. I mean, I want you to gather all of that into your mind as the perfect day. Christmas, right? So think about those things that you see. You're going to see trees and lights, and you're going to see presents and bows and family. You're even going to see that ridiculous sweater that your uncle wears with Rudolph and bells hanging on, or whatever it is, right? Picture that. See that perfect Christmas day. I want you to hear that perfect Christmas day as well. I want you to hear uh, just the sound of laughter and music and, 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 and the sound of paper ripping, actually ripping paper. And I know your grandma won't rip it. She'll actually just break the, the tape, right? She'll fold it. She's going to save it for next year, right? So um, that's what she... But, but just hear that perfect Christmas day. Now smell that perfect Christmas day, that pine and that cinnamon smell. Right? Taste your perfect Christmas day. Maybe it's cocoa or peppermint or uh, you pick your thing eggnog, but taste that. And, and then touch that perfect Christmas day. Uh, touch that perfect day where it's just warmth of soul and hugs from others and happiness and, and, and just that whole scene. Capture that whole Christmas scene. Here's why I say that, because I think for all of us, when we think on Christmas, it's like this one day out of the year that is the ideal day. It's the day we want to protect. It's that iconic day where we want to make sure everything is perfect, everything is just right, everything is ideal. We are longing for this day in which there is true joy and true hope and true peace. And so we long for this, we plan for this, we decorate for this day, right? In fact, in a lot of ways, what happens with our homes is that our living room becomes this little Eden, right? with a tree and everything. And we just want the scene. And when we create that scene, when we think about Christmas and we establish all of that, what's interesting is that sometimes in the midst of that, we forget that it was our loss of Eden that made Christmas necessary. It was our loss of Eden that created the first Christmas. 
And at that first Christmas, it's not like the Christmas that we create. It's not like the scene that we paint in our homes and lives. It's very different because the first Christmas was predicated on the arrival of God coming into a world that was broken, that was bruised, that was bleak, and that was burdened. In fact, the first Christmas is this veiled um, event where the veil is beginning to remove, right? It had been veiled for a long time. God had been up to things. God had been on the move. But all of that had been very veiled. Hope had been veiled. Joy had been veiled. Peace had been veiled. But with the arrival of the coming of God, it's like this fulfillment of a promise that said, I will bring those again to this world. Eden was lost. But you know what? Joy will be found. Hope will be found. Peace will be found. See, when I think about the story of Christmas, we realize it is the story of a mighty, sovereign king who said, I'm going to come to this world and I'm going to do it very personal and I'm going to be very sacrificial and my actions are going to be very transformational. And when God came to us, he didn't come to sit in the seat of honor, but he came as the gift of grace, a gift. In fact, the prophet writes about this. Unto us uh, a child is born, unto us a son is given. See, the idea of the coming one was a gift given. Not just one to be honored, but a gift that is received by this world. Later in Jesus' life, he'd say the same thing. He'd say, God gave his one and only son to the world as a gift. See, this is really about a gift, right? In fact, of all the things we do this Wednesday to celebrate Christmas, one of the only things that's really going to be connected to the very first Christmas is that idea of gift giving. Right? The idea that God said, I care for the world so much, I will give this gift. The special, unprecedented one. Now when God came at that first Christmas, again, it's not like the way we construct our Christmas season. Very, very different. Very different even than the way we probably envision the way Christmas goes down. Because we like to make it very sanitary. We like to think in terms of on that first Christmas Eve, it was an oh holy night. It was calm. It was bright. It was controlled. It was picturesque. It was this whole scene that one day we would put it on Christmas cards and postcards and send to friends everywhere. That's how we put it together. But if we reconstruct the scene, we see something very different. We see Joseph. Here's this teenager, right? Maybe in his late teens, blue collar. uh, He swings a hammer for a living, right? That's his life. And he's dating, now engaged, to this nice, sweet hometown girl. But the town they're from is not a popular town. Nobody wants to move to this town. Nobody likes this town. Walmart would not even build in this town. All right? That's their home. And so here's this hardworking guy, meets this sweet girl, and here's this girl, maybe just going into her teen years, right? Unsophisticated, uneducated, unexperienced in the things of life. That is our scene. It would be through these people that God would invade the world, that God would bring his great counteroffensive. 
he would come to a couple of nobodies from a nothing town in the middle of nowhere to change the entire world. That's what he would do. And it shouldn't surprise us because I think about how God himself planned out Jesus coming into the world. Paul writes about this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, have this mind among you which is also in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. And he took the form of a slave. Right? It's this nobody that's born to a couple of nobodies who is going to save the world, even though sometimes the world is filled with a lot of people who think they are somebodies. Right? That is what this is all about. Now, when that all went down, was Mary thrilled at the prospect? Did Mary hear the story of the angel and instantly say, Oh, I can't believe it. I'm so excited. i got to tell everybody. No, that's not her response. Ground yourself in the story. Here's this young girl. An angel comes, says, you are going to carry the most high in your womb. She is scared to death and terrified at the news. Because think about what this means. Here she is, 13 years old, small town. A lot of chatter is going to happen in that town. Well, why is she pregnant? How does she get pregnant? Joseph and Mary, they're not married yet. She's just going to be the knocked up girl in town. That's what she's going to be, and she knows it. She knows that whatever happens next, there will be a stigma attached to her life. Because whatever it is, it can't be right, because it certainly can't be that God did this, because God doesn't do this. And so, man, she's afraid. And then there's Joseph, right? Joseph's a quality guy, but when he first heard the news, was Joseph like, oh, man, no problem. Come on, Mary, we'll take care of it. No, he's frustrated, he's angry, he's going to call this whole thing off, he's a just man, so he's going to put her away in secret, but notice it says he's going to put her away, right? So he looks at this and says, you know what, whatever, you know, I, I don't know what happened, I don't know who he was, but he's not me, and I thought we were together, but now we're not, you've cheated on me, I don't want any part of this, I'm just done. That's the story of Christmas. She's afraid, he's done. She's going to have a scarlet letter, and he's going to have this reputation that he got suckered by somebody else, and he's not going to have anything to do with it, because again, he was cheated on, he was wrong, he was dishonored, so he's, he's finished. But then an angel comes and asks so much of Joseph. He says, uh, Joseph, you've got to understand that this woman is carrying God's own son. And so take her as your own. But do not know her until after the child has been born. And so Joseph takes this news and he saddles up and he takes Mary as his own. But understand as he does that, it's not again this really clean antiseptic story. It's a story in which by doing so, um, he will have a reputation in his community. He will not get work like he used to. People are going to whisper all the time, yeah, we know, we know Mary was pregnant before. And it might have been them. Oh, don't deal with them. See, it's, it's not so simple. It's not so clean. It doesn't fit on a postcard so well. What God asks of Mary is, Mary, I want to use you, but you will suffer. And Joseph, I want to use you, but you will suffer. But 
their suffering is just a foreshadowing of their sweet, precious child who comes to suffer. So Mary and Joseph obey. Mary and Joseph trust. Mary and Joseph move in faith. Now, does that mean after they did that, the story got really, really clean and simple? No. Sometimes you think, well, if I obey God, if I take the step that God has asked me to take, once I take it, after that, it's going to be all clean going. Well, that's not at all what we see in the story. No sooner do they say, yes, God, we will obey. Yes, God, we will do. Yes, God, we will take ownership of this task that you have called us to, this blessing that's going to be so hard. No sooner does that happen that they find out their king wants more taxes and wants to take more of their money, so they need to take a big, long road trip to get counted so their money can be counted in the pockets of their king. So now Joseph and Mary, now in her third trimester, need to take a hundred-mile trip to his hometown. I mean, that's a drag. And so they go on the journey, and as she's entering the city, uh, something happens, which is contractions. The worst time you would want to be giving birth is just entering town. And so they panic, they're afraid, what do they do next? So they try to find some relatives in the town, some extended family, but they can't bring them into the house, there's just no space. So then they go to an inn, and the inn says there's no room in the inn, and so where do they end up? They end up in this dung-scented, foul cave, hewn out of the rock, that is only good for the animals. It's not a clean story, but I think about this and I realize that Humanity really isn't a clean story. See, the reality of the first Christmas is the reality of the human condition, that it is wrought with fear, fatigue, pain, insecurity, blood, sweat, tears, hardship. That's the first Christmas. The first Christmas is this frigid environment where you have this teenage dad with his calloused, carpenter hands trying to help his sweet wife give birth to a child in the most foul type of environment that's what you have you have this teenage girl who doesn't have her mother or her sisters or her closest friends around her in this just horrible situation with tears and sweat over her face with dirt i mean this is christmas that's christmas They're in a place so bad, even the shepherds are out in the fields. They're not going to stay in here. That's where God invades the world. And then you have the baby. Literally the slave king, as it says in Philippians. There he is, wrapped in cloth, which is really rags, laying in a feeding trough with a cave for his first nursery. That's Christmas. It's amazing how God broke into our world. It's amazing that he came in the real condition of the human experience. And the question is, why did he do it that way? And why did he come at all? Right? Why would he engage in this whole thing? And the answer is very simple. This is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and it highlights why God did this. God did this because he has a radical, infectious, unstoppable, unyielding love for humanity. Love. 
That's why he did it. He decided that he would leave a throne and choose a trough because of love. He decided he would leave this environment where angels were singing and instead crowds would scream for his death. That's why he leaves it. He left pleasure and ease and comfort for pain and suffering. Why? Love. God loved us that much. And it isn't just, hey, love you. It's not trivial or shallow or trite. God has this intensity of love that is both an affection and a conviction. His affection is saying, I am zealous for you. I am zealous to do this. I will do whatever it takes. And then he has that conviction that says, oh, and here's what it's going to take. I'm going to come as the servant. I'm going to come as the slave. I'm going to come to the lowest of low. I'm going to live in the lowest of states. And I'm going to submit myself completely for those who don't love me. That's God's love. That's God's first Christmas. He comes as we are. And he comes to give us what we need because he knows our condition. Paul writes about our condition. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses of your sins. You are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. It says, we all once lived like that in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that was our state. That was the situation. That's what Jesus comes into is this small baby. We were broken and rebellious and not in tune with God. That was our problem. But I love Paul's words in verse 4. After outlining the problem, in verse 4 he says, But God. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I love what he says in 1 John chapter 4. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. See, that's true love. That's what Christmas is all about. Even more than just Mary and Joseph and a baby. It is this fulfillment of God. It is this unveiling of everything that he had been doing and maneuvering and planning and unfolding for thousands of years. All these veiled things become unveiled at the birth because, again, what God was unveiling was his, his love. And it is a powerful love. Paul says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have the power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I love that. His love is so wide, it can cover the world. It is so long, it can go on for eternity. It is so high that it can take us to the heights of God's domain. And it is so deep, it can get the worst of the worst. It can reach the lowest of the low. That is the depth of his love. And so Jesus entered into our pain, our fear, our hurt, our dysfunction, and our grief to unveil God's love. And that love has no limit. No limit. 
When Jesus comes, he says, you know what, I'm going to take your sins without limit. I'm going to give you my righteousness without limit. I'm going to grant you access without limit. And in all of that, I am going to delight in you without limit. See, Jesus comes into the world not only to reveal love, but a love so potent that it causes God literally to delight over us. In fact, one of the prophets foresaw this long ago. The prophet Zephaniah writes this. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion, do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord, your God, is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will quiet you. He will rejoice over you with singing. Do do you realize that God sings over you? Because his love has been revealed to you through Christ. That's what the prophet's talking about. One day will be this time where your hands are going to hang low and you're going to feel unloved. No, you're going to feel loved, so loved, you're going to know that God sings over you. He's going to quiet you in that love. That is the love that is unveiled. That is the love he sheds abroad in our hearts. And so because of this love, Jesus seeks something from us and in us. He says, because you've been loved so greatly, so powerfully, so profoundly, so truly, so eternally, uh, there's three things I want you to do. The first thing Jesus wants us to do because of the fact that God has come to this world to show us love is this. He wants us to love God and what God loves. Right? So this isn't just, hey, I'm loved, that's great, but I don't reciprocate. No, what he says is, I want you to love God and love what God loves. In 1 John chapter 5, it says that we are to love God and we are to obey his commands. And those commands, if we really love them, aren't burdensome. Right? What, what, what he's saying is, you know what, again, uh, the true essence of what it means to be loved by God and know you're loved by God and live in the love of God is to love him back. And in loving him back, you know what that means? It means... Doing what he asks. Not because it's a burden or a drag, but because it's a blessing and a joy. I love serving my wife because I love my wife. I don't look at serving my wife as a drag. I dig my wife, so I love serving my wife. That's what God seeks of us. And so first of all, he says, I want you to love God and love what God loves. Second, he says, I want you to love those who love you. Love those who love you. First John chapter 4, verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, we might hear that and say, well, that's a no-brainer. I can love those who love me. Then why are we sometimes so bad at it? I mean, families go sideways and marriages go sideways and parent-child relationships go sideways because people who claim to love one another don't seem to always love one another. I think one of the most profound things that God says to us and models in the birth and the coming of Jesus is... That love is hard. We needed him to invade us to help us love. And sometimes loving those we love and those who love us is a tough thing. And so we need to love those who love us with the same love that God shows. And then third, Jesus says something very hard. He says love those who don't love us. Right? Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard that the law says love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies. We go, well, why? Why should I love my enemy? That's, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of inconvenience. You don't know what they've done. Here's why we love our enemies. It's really simple. We love our enemies because God loved us when we were enemies. It's that simple. 
We love our enemies because God loved us when we were enemies. We love those who love us because, man, we are called to have that kind of expression of love. And we are to love what God loves as well as love God himself. And when you do this, man, you sense God more. John says this, he says, we know how much God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. He says, God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. When we resolve to love because God has loved us, we are resolving to a life of faith. We're not worrying about whether it's reciprocated. We're not worrying about whether we're mistreated. We're not worrying about any of the fairness. We're just saying, I trust God and therefore I choose to love. And when I choose to love, I'm choosing to live in God. And when I do so, I experience more of God in my life. And the more we experience God, the more we experience his love. I go back to this whole Advent wreath. Every one of these things is tethered to this life with God. We will not experience true joy without the true experience of God. We won't experience true hope without the true experience of God. Same for peace, same for love. God is the source, which is why God came. And so next time in our lives, when we are hurt, you know what we do? We love. When we're wronged, we love. When we're betrayed, we love. When we're overlooked, we love. When we're disrespected, we love. When we're tired, we love. When we're frustrated, we love. When we're unappreciated, we love. When we're slighted, we love. When we're slandered, we love. Accused, we love. Mishandled, we love. The list could go on and on and on. What we are called to is to love. And why are we called to that? Because if anybody follows Jesus, uh, they have been brought into a relationship of love and are thus likewise called to love. That is the essence of Christmas. So Christ came to the world and did the same thing in and through us. And so I end with what love unveiled is really like. Here's love unveiled in our lives. Love is patient. And it is kind. Love does not envy. And it doesn't boast. Love, when it's truly unveiled, is not arrogant. It's not rude. Love unveiled does not insist on its own way. And it's not irritable and it's not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Rather, love, in a fully unveiled state, rejoices with what is true. Love, it bears all things. And it believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love truly unveiled never fails. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your love. I thank you for what we reflect on in this holiday season. That this is what you came to bring. Everything was veiled up to that point. Our ideas and identity when it comes to these words of hope and peace and joy and love, they were all frail and fallen. And apart from life in you, that still lingers. We still don't understand what those things truly can be, the depths that they can bring. And so I pray that we learn of you, that we draw close to you, that we need you so that we can experience what it is you have gifted to us. We love you and thank you in your name. Amen.